I'm so excited to be here tonight, and uh, I feel like I have a message that God has laid on my heart that I'm hoping will speak to whoever God wants it to hear. Um, let's just pray real quick before we start the sermon. Lord, thank you for this opportunity tonight for our church as a family to gather and to think about the things that you want us to know, what you want us to learn, and how you want us to live. I pray that we take in the knowledge and the wisdom that you are seeking to give us and that we put that into action and that our lives reflect your glory and your grace even more than they do now. In your name, amen. Sorry, not used to having this on my face either. <laughs> okay, so um, have any of you ever been in a situation that completely exhausts all of your mental, emotional, and spiritual strength and capacity? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and if you have not, just wait. You're going to get a turn. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're alive, and if you put yourself out there, you will get into a challenge that you can't face on your own. Um, so at some point in our lives, we're going to be put in a situation where all of our life experience, or education, or training, or our appearance, our accomplishments, or our personal connections are not going to be enough to get us through. Or, conversely, we will be fully aware of our lack and not feel any motivation or hope at all to continue pressing on because we are so vastly aware of our deficiencies. To get through these circumstances, we are going to need to surrender to God and let him take the lead. Honestly, both of these situations are the same. At some point, we come to understand our vast deficiencies, either up front or later down the line. Another component of true surrender is awareness of our personal expectations and the expectations of others. Expectations are a heavy and unnecessary yoke to bear. We try to control the outcomes in our lives based on these expectations, and this is unrealistic. And it's just not helpful. Jesus never called us to control our outcomes but to be obedient, even if our faith is small and weak. When we come to understand that Jesus' expectations of us are just obedience, but not to control the outcomes of every situation that we face, we realize this is a much easier burden to bear. The yoke that he has given us is not one where we have to be absolutely responsible. He is the one that wants to guide us through. You see, we live our lives with certain pictures of ourselves. Our self-conceptions are partly formed and fueled by our expectations that we try to live up to, either positive or negative. This is called a self-fulfilling prophecy. We envision ourselves in certain terms, and these terms dictate our decisions, such as, oh, I'm funny, so I make jokes all the time, or I'm stupid, so I'm not going to even try. Also, we perceive the expectations that others have of us, our spouses, our children, parents, friends, coworkers, community, 
state and federal agencies. And at times, these expectations can serve as motivation to spur us on, or they can pull us down. We feel the expectation from these sources, and they further refine the way that we see ourselves. When we come to a place in our lives where our capabilities, our competencies, or lack thereof, and the expectations from self and others do not match up, there's a great amount of confusion as the person we thought we were is not shining through and rising to the occasion. We are essentially brought to a grinding halt where all we feel is inadequate and not up to the task. These are the perfect opportunities for God to show us who he's made us to be. The refinement process gets intense, and we go through the fire, and if we surrender, the dross will rise to the top, and we will see a reflection of God's face in our lives. We will begin to understand our identity is in Christ and not what others or we think of ourselves. There's a man uh, that is only written about for three chapters in the Bible whose life exemplifies this. He led his life based on expectations of himself and the expectations of others, was very arrogant, and he had great blessings from the Lord. That man is Samson. We don't talk about him very much. He was one of the judges in the Old Testament. Samson was born to Manoah from the clan of Danites. At this time, the Israelites lived before the introduction of human kings ruling over them, such as King David. Yahweh was their king, at least he was supposed to be. Therefore, they didn't need earthly kings. During this time, God gave judges to help guide the people, but they were not kings. Samson was one of those judges. He lived at a time when the Philistines had started to rule over the Israelites. The Israelites did not seem to fight back nor be really bothered by the Philistine rule. They took on the Philistine religion and intermarried with their women. Before Samson was born, an angel visited his mother twice, telling her Samson was to be a Nazarite. This is meaning a person set apart to God from birth. Now, the stipulations for this status for Samson was simply, was simply that he could not drink anything fermented, could not go near a dead body, and also could not have his hair cut or shaved. That was a good one. <laughs> I have to recognize that. <laughs> With this status, he would be given great strength to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Even though Samson was set apart for the Lord, he didn't really live his life like it. He was married once, visited prostitutes, and lived with a woman, all of them Philistines. Samson also had a significant temper and was known for killing people that opposed him. He never demonstrates any significant leading of the Israelites. Actually, he leads a pretty selfish and arrogant life, indulging in his own desires. Throughout his life, Samson demonstrated the supernatural physical strength God had given him by killing a lion with his bare hands and killing a thousand Philistine men with a jawbone of a donkey. Now, that is supernatural because it sounds really exhausting and also very painful <laughs> just to have a jawbone to kill a thousand men with. 
Uh, but beside feats of supernatural strength, Samson was stronger in general than the average man, causing great intimidation to many. Samson's downfall was his arrogance in revealing the secret to his great strength to the last Philistine woman he lived with, Delilah. His hair had never been cut. She seduced Samson, pestered him until he told her the secret, and then used that information against him. She had another Philistine man shave Samson's head in his sleep, rendering him weak, and then turned him over to the Philistines. This is where Samson's life takes a massive downward spiral very fast. They in turn gouged out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and set him to grinding in the prison. Samson was publicly ridiculed and imprisoned. His expectations of self, the expectations of others, his blessings, his talents, his skills... What he thought he could do in his own strength did not come together. There was great incongruity in his life at this point. The person that he thought he was, that he built his identity on, was completely destroyed as he was bound and shackled and led away like an animal, set to grinding to a stone in the prison. And most people would assume that the story ends here But Samson's hair regrew, and with that, his strength. But his attitude drastically changed at this point. He was completely humbled and humiliated. He now completely understood that all of his strength was a gift from God and not of himself. He took it a different approach to his life after regaining his strength. Even in Samson's disobedience to Yahweh by immoral relationships with women and murdering Philistines, God was still faithful to him in his position of powerless and humiliation. God didn't say, well, your life is a train wreck, so I'm moving on to the next person. No, he stuck with Samson. He made a promise to Samson, and he stuck with him. During a Philistine celebration to one of their idols, they brought Samson out of prison for their entertainment, making him perform. Samson was now on the level of an animal. I can imagine his self-worth was completely diminished at this point, and he felt immense amounts of regret for his disobedience. Despite his extremely low position and seeming lack of a faithful life, Samson knew Yahweh's character in faithfulness. In his blindness and humiliation... Samson cried out to Yahweh for vindication and killed thousands of Philistines by having a child, a boy, lead him blinded for life to the supporting pillars of the temple he was performing in like an animal. There he positioned his hands on the pillars and he pushed them apart, causing the massive stone temple to come crashing down, killing him and thousands of all the Philistines in it. More was accomplished when he surrendered to the Lord than when he abused the power God gave him in his entire life. It came to the point where Samson gave his life to finally accomplish God's will. Now, who knows if Samson would have needed to give his life to accomplish God's will, or if he had been obedient, 
could his demise have been avoided? That is not the point I'm trying to extrapolate. I'm trying to show that Samson had expectations of himself. He felt the expectations of his others. He knew he was a Nazarite. He knew that was special. He knew he had a status and a calling on his life. He knew he had great power, and he believed he was capable of anything, and he took that for granted. And then when it came to a point where he was humiliated and brought to a place in his life where he had absolutely no control, and the only decision he could make was to surrender himself to the Lord and say, all right, God, I got nothing. I have nothing. Do something for me. Bring me back from the dead. Give me life. Help me to live your will for my life because I have got it now. I can't do it, and I need you to do it for me. I had an experience of this in a lesser way, not, not nearly as dramatic as Samson's life. Uh, in the summer of 2006, after Cole and I had been cycling, uh, probably about two or three years at that point, we really enjoyed the sport, still do. Um, I decided I'd like to branch out, try something that includes cycling but's a little bit different. I want to try triathlons. And I had grown up swimming, my parents lived on a lake, been swimming since I was five. I can swim really long distances, took swim lessons as a child, but I had never mastered the freestyle stroke, or as some people call it, the crawl. Now, this is the stroke that all triathletes use in these events because it's the most efficient use of your body's energy for going long distances, and you can get there the quickest in the most efficient manner. What I didn't know and the skill I needed to learn to master that stroke was the breathing pattern. <laughs> really hard, <laughs> really hard. <laughs> so you have to breathe with your face to the side, take a quick breath with your mouth open. Your head goes back underwater as you continue your stroking. You're, what you're supposed to do <laughs> is exhale through your nose as your face returns to the water and then you take a couple more strokes. You can either return to the same side for a breath or you can go to the other side for a breath. It's more convenient if you can learn how to take sides on both, take breaths on both sides so that if you are a little winded at the time, you don't have to wait for a stroke to go back to the side that you're most comfortable with. But you need to exhale that air or you can't keep swimming. That doesn't work. And so, we were on vacation, Cole and I were on vacation with my parents in eastern Oregon. We were camping on my parents' houseboat for a week on the water. Hey, perfect opportunity to learn the freestyle stroke because I decided I wanted to be a triathlete. Noah was one at the time and there's a lot of people to watch him, so this was cool. A week on the water, water skiing, kneeboarding, tubing, swimming, excellent, I can do this. No, <laughs> didn't get it. <laughs> I spent so long in the water, at least one hour session, if not more, trying to take a breath to the side, exhale through my nose as my face returned to the water and keep swimming at the same time. No, didn't work, <laughs> couldn't do it. Every time my face returned to the water, 
water up my nose. <laughs> I was trying my best to take a breath, and then simultaneously, well, instantly, after I take in that breath, push the water, excuse me, push the air out through my nose as I return to the water. Didn't work, uh-uh. Got water up my nose every single time. You can't swim if you have water in your nose. It doesn't work. <laughs> you end up gagging and choking a lot and you don't get anywhere. <laughs> I got really, really angry <laughs> because I've always been a good athlete. I've always been able to succeed in whatever I put my mind to. And so I was really mad and Cole was encouraging me, no, you can do it, you can do it. Just keep trying, just keep trying. I'm like, I can't do this, I'm so frustrated. <laughs> um, and I knew that some people used this really cool thing called a nose clip. <laughs> you put it on your nose like this, and you can't get water up your nose. <laughs> but most triathletes don't use a nose clip, and I had high expectations of myself. I was not going to succumb to using the nose clip. I thought, I can do this. No, I couldn't. <laughs> So we get back from vacation, and Cole's like, just go get a nose clip. Just try it. I'm like, no. If I just work at it harder, I can do it. He's like, yeah, but you get so angry. I'm like, so? <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> but I couldn't. <laughs> so I was watching videos and reading articles about how to breathe through your mouth, exhale through your nose. Realized this is, I can't do it. It's just not going to work. Went to like a big five sporting goods store, bought the stupid little nose clip, <laughs> went to the pool, stuck the thing on, felt like I looked like an idiot. Good thing there weren't a lot of people there. <laughs> Got in the pool, started doing the stroke, started practicing it. Guess what? I could do it. <laughs> Yay for the stupid little nose clip. <laughs> so as soon as I started practicing this stroke and starting to get the breathing pattern down, I could actually make it from one end to the pool to the other end without stopping. Wow. And then as time went on, I could go 20, 30 minutes at a time, back and forth, back and forth, swimming laps, and then stop for a breath but it took a really long time. None of this would have happened unless I would have surrendered to that little nose clip because I needed to breathe so I could build up my endurance. Well, I did go on to compete in triathlon, started out with some smaller ones, worked my way up. A year after I decided I wanted to become a triathlete, I competed in and finished my longest triathlon ever. I did the half Ironman in Lake Stevens, Washington in the summer of 2007 when Noah was two. And that's an insanely long event. <laughs> I certainly did not enter that event with any hopes of placing because there's hundreds of participants that come. I think there were close to 900 participants that year because this event attracts professionals from all over the world. A lot of professionals obviously from the US come in this event, you swim 1.2 miles. You don't stop, obviously. You swim freestyle 
1.2 miles, you come back to the transition area, you bike for 56 miles, you come back to the transition area, now you run a half marathon, 13.1 miles, just to make it fun. <laughs> I finished that event in about seven and a half hours. So that's an all-day event. Pros finished in about three and a half hours. I was getting lapped on the bike for sure by these guys. You can hear their disc wheels just as they're whizzing by you on their like $10,000 carbon fiber triathlon bikes. And I'm like, well, that's cool. They get paid to do it. <laughs> I just want to finish. So mothers were like that in life. We have expectations of ourselves. We feel the expectations of others. And we bring it on. We put the yoke on ourselves that we don't need to have. We think, oh, I need to have a home-cooked meal from scratch every night to be a good mom. There can't be any dirty laundry. I have to have a clean house. My yard can't have any weeds if I have a yard. I either need to work full-time or I need to be like the most amazing home mom ever, and I need to do these really cool crafts with my kids every weekend. I should have these amazing scrapbooks documenting all the major life stages of their lives. No, <laughs> that's not realistic. I mean, we really set ourselves up when we look at Pinterest and Facebook so much about what all these other moms are doing and what, where are they living in La La Land? I mean, come on. <laughs> Get a grip. I don't even plan my kids' birthday parties by myself. Holly does it. <laughs> That's not my thing. I'm like, yep, not my strength. I'm getting Holly to do it. <laughs> so if you've ever been to any of my kids' birthday parties, Holly does a really good job. <laughs> That's not me. <laughs> Yeah, if we can be wearing some clean clothes and if someone is eating, woohoo! <laughs> That's a good week, right? <laughs> so, I do have a little rainforest growing around my house right now, which I'm hoping to tame before we have the first summer potluck. But when you come to my house and if you see a little forest around the house, you'll understand it just didn't happen. <laughs> so, Moms, give yourself a break, right? What do your children need the most from you? Love. Yeah. Does Jesus set up expectations of scanning Pinterest all the time? Having these awesome meals? Crafting with your kids? No. No, not in the least. What he tells us is, if you love me, then obey me. And what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor like that. Who's your neighbor? Your kids. Your neighbors are your kids. You spend a lot of time with them. Your children need you to be consistent, to be there, to be present. And it doesn't matter if you cook them freezer meals every night or 
if you do not have any scrapbooks whatsoever, because I don't. <laughs> Save my pictures on the, cam on, uh, the computer and that's it. <laughs> they time and date stamp them, so that's good. I can look through the years. But your children need you to be in their lives. They need you to love them, to consistently love them unconditionally. That's it. That's what they need. You don't need to be super mom because you know what? Then you put your expectations for yourself above what they really need. Now you're thinking about yourself instead of what your children want. When your children grow up and they leave the house, they don't remember the really good meals or the fancy scrapbooks or the cool crafts. They remember how much time you spent with them. They remember how much you love them. Because now you're going to be raising kids who grow up to do the same thing. They just love their kids. Everything else flows from there. Mothers, understand that your identity is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. And that's it. Being a mother is just one hat that you wear. And there's so many life stages of being a mom. Because eventually your kids grow up and leave the house. <laughs> some point, <laughs> right? <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, just be there. If you start to think about your identity is in Christ, everything else is going to fall from there. You will love your children for who they are. You will expect them to act like kids. And you will think of yourself as just a person who loves the children that God has entrusted you to raise. You see, my little nose clip <laughs> is it's just a symbol of us being put into positions in life where we're going to face something that we can't do on our own strength, our own education, our training, our experience, our accolades, personal connections. It's not going to be sufficient. It's not going to do it. Conversely, God will directly put you into situations where you are fully aware going into it that you don't have anything of what is required to face your challenge. The lack of education, training, your youth, experience, personal connections are not necessary to be followers of Jesus. The only requirement is obedience. Even low faith in God is not an issue because he has faith in us even when we don't have faith in him. And praise God for that. What God wants from us is our surrender to him. He can take care of the rest. As we surrender to his strength and capability, he will call us further along by participating in his plan for us. The growth will continue. We will need to stay engaged in his spirit and follow the road he has for us. Surrender is not an excuse to then stop trying, but rather the catalyst that will illuminate the plan and growth God has for us. As my friend Corey says, when we have the epiphany that we need to surrender, it's like realizing we have to tread a new path of obedience. The path is very overgrown and will require a lot of trips back and forth of obedience for the brush to be trampled down and make it an easier path to follow. Do not expect that surrender is the end. 
It's just the beginning of a new strand of self-discovery of what life in Christ is truly like. Freedom to be who God made you to be. Not having the competencies necessary to face your circumstances is not a valid cop-out. It is actually the validation for us to persist in obedience. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. Swimming nonstop for 1.2 miles did not come instantly after I started using the nose clip. It required discipline in a strict training and eating regimen for nine months. I went to the pool for an hour at least twice a week on top of my running and cycling plan, which was a total of 15, 10 to 15 hours a week, including all three disciplines, for nine months, no breaks, to prepare for the half Ironman. And during this event, I had to follow a carefully planned eating and hydration plan to finish. Every calorie and ounce of fluid was accounted for with specific timing for each session and three different types of hydration to be used at specific times. You see, God's grace is truly efficient for us. I mean, it really is. When you get put into a position where whatever you have or your lack, it doesn't cut it, or you realize, looking into that situation, you are never going to make it through. Well, praise God. Praise God. How are you going to get to know your Lord and Savior if he doesn't put you or you go into a place where you don't become intimate with him, where you don't rely on your spirit, on his spirit, every single day to get you through. How are you going to know 
the great author of life, unless you get to know him. There is no way. So when you are put in that challenge, when those circumstances come, count yourself blessed. If you are poor in spirit, realizing that you have nothing to do to accomplish God's will in your life, praise God. And when you are humbled and humiliated like Samson and pressed down and ridiculed, praise God. Because you see in Samson's life, he did not accomplish anything noteworthy until he came to understand that everything, everything God had given him was a blessing. He couldn't make his own hair grow back. Only God can do that. He could not do what he needed to do unless he had the strength of God. We cannot follow Jesus. We cannot be obedient unless we surrender to the fact that we can't do it. You might be a person of high intelligence with a lot of education and a lot of training. And if you have not been in that place of humiliation, it will happen. And when you come to it, understand this is for your refinement. This is for your good. You can approach it with a bad attitude, not believing the Lord and being angry at him, or you can come to him and ask why. I don't understand because the confusion sets in of your expectations of yourself and the expectations of others and the knowledge of everything that you've done in your life. There's great incongruence there. But when you feel that, you come to the Lord and you say, I don't understand. And his Holy Spirit will come into your life and tell you, you know what? You were never meant to accomplish everything on your own anyway. That's me. That's my job. I'm here for you. I didn't ask you to do all of this by yourself. I just asked you to follow me, and that's it. So understand that God loves you. And if you're in those positions, praise God. You're blessed. You really are. Because now you get to know your Lord and Savior just that much more. And the depth of your relationship with Jesus will only strengthen. And you know what? The growth is going to continue. So don't expect that it's going to stop. You're going to have aftershocks, right, Corey? You're going to experience this. The lesson will keep coming, but in different ways. And you will keep experiencing this. And praise God. Because who wants to stay who they really are? Who doesn't want to grow? So live in the knowledge that the Lord loves you and that everything that comes through your life, he can use it for your good, even if you don't understand. And if you need something like this, surrender to that nose clip, right? Praise God.